Well, a rescue. Wouldn't a rescue be a great story to hear this morning? A story about a rescue. To be honest, um, last night I was looking over my notes for this morning and um, I thought, well, and I wonder if I should change my message. <laughs> you know, all the events of this week and just the nonstop news and um, updates about people's agony and suffering and being trapped and fearful you know they might be losing their entire livelihood or their place of dwelling they might their their health and their safety and their life might be in jeopardy wouldn't a rescue be a great story i thought but i don't think sure they want to hear all that nevertheless um, let's press on let's press on Somehow I pray that um, that when people consider what's what's at risk here, that they will realize that there's there's there must be more than this to life. There must be more than where you live and what you live in <clears throat> to life, and we are we are made for we are made for something more than this. So I'm sure you've seen stories about the rescues. People trapped by rising waters of Hurricane Florence. These people that were trapped in their attics and they were tweeting out, would somebody come help me? They were hopeless. They were unable to escape the threat of death by drowning or by destruction of their homes. And we want to thank God this morning for all the people who, who put their own lives at risk to go serve others. And that's an admirable trait. But those who were rescued will never forget the ones who came to save them. Those who were rescued will never forget the people that, who, who went out into the danger of the wind and the water to help them. So today, my message is on a similar <coughs> subject as this. It's a similar topic. And I want to speak to you today about a rescue that secures joy, assures future, empowers growth towards maturity, even redeems one's sanity. Today, I want to talk about and reflect on the greatness of your salvation, what it really means to be saved. But first, I want you to consider this. I was. Uh, I remember being in Peru, and I first had this thought. We were up in Chinchero, twelve thousand feet, and I was looking at this little bitty church, smaller than us, smaller than us. And I was thinking, God, the links that you went to get us here to share Christ with these people, I was just blown away by that. What God would do to send thirty people four thousand miles and climb in this mountain. And, and then it hit me that uh, that was nothing compared to what God did. So consider this. What does it take for God to raise an axe head out of the river? What does it take? It takes an axe head to be 
<laughs> well, yeah. It, it takes he, God calls a man to cut off a stick and throw it into the river. And Jason, this is why I was talking about there's so many miracles revolving water because you're going to hear about, about a bunch of them. Second Kings 6. But as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water. And he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. Then the man of God said, Where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in the water and made the iron float. And he said, take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. Is this how you find lost things? This is how you do it, right? I don't know. You cut off a stick and throw it in the water and bam, there it is. Why did God put this in Scripture? You know, to make us think about it who he is and what he does. How do you uh, consider to get a gold coin out of a fish's mouth in order to pay your taxes? Now, this is not April. This is October. Nevertheless, we do pay taxes. Don't you just go down to the lake and throw a hook into the lake and catch the first fish you find? And open its mouth and there's the gold coin to pay your taxes with. Not only yours, but also your friend's taxes. Isn't that the way you pay your taxes? You're, you're a fisherman. How many times have you caught a fish that had a gold coin in its mouth? Uh, never. Never. Luke 8, 24. And they went and woke him. I'm sorry. Matthew 17, 27. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and yourself. I wish it were that simple for all of us. Just to say, go do this, and it happens. Or this one. To calm the waves and the wind and the storm. Don't you just stand up and rebuke them for causing such a fuss? And they quiet down. Isn't that why you do it? And this is uh, Luke eight twenty four. And they went and woke him, saying, "Master, Master, we are perishing." And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and waves, and they were ceased, and there was a calm. You know, I thought, well, why didn't we think of this with Hurricane Florence? Yeah. We did. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, why didn't we think of doing it God's way? And I'm thinking. I'm just, I'm just considering all of these things. Uh, or perhaps you wanted to cover the earth with water. The entire earth with water. And you, you just simply release the fountains of the earth and open the windows of heaven. And the entire earth is covered with water. I mean, that's what he did with Noah. That's what God did. Genesis 6, 17, 18. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. You know, I'm thankful that that only happened one time. But when God wanted to flood the earth, he just spoke it. Or this one. You want to keep Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego safe in a fiery furnace. 
Daniel 3, 23-25. These three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, oh, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Isn't that the way you keep yourself from being burned? You just cast yourself in the fire and... Or suppose you wanted to create and name 200 trillion billion stars. The space for them to exist and then put them all into motion. Wouldn't you just speak it out? Wouldn't you just say it and it would happen? I mean, when was the last time you tried creating 200 trillion billion stars? And the space for them all to live in. Psalm 147, 4-5. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. This raises the question also asked in Genesis eighteen fourteen: Is anything too hard for the Lord? And the answer is found in Jeremiah 32. 17. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. And if Jeremiah's answer wasn't enough, the answer is confirmed later when God says to Jeremiah, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? And then Luke 18, 27, when Jesus says, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Here's the point. Clearly nothing is too hard or impossible for God. Accomplishing all these acts I've just referred to do not seem to take in very much effort. Do they? They'll stick in. Here's the octet. Go, go catch the first fish. There's the tax money. Uh, they don't seem to cost him a lot or cause him much pain or challenge him in any way. The Bible is full of examples of this. He turned Lot's wife into a pillar of salt. He split the Red Sea to form dry land. For 40 years, he fed an entire nation with bread from the sky. He had ravens bring his prophets food. He made a jar of meal and flask of oil to keep on pouring out and providing until the famine was over. He shut the mouths of the lions to protect Daniel. He healed the lame. He cleansed lepers. He gave sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf. He sped 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. He raised Lazarus from the dead. And all of these things were done by the word of God. He spoke and it was done. But here's the question. What did God have to do when he chose to save a people for himself? What did he have to do when he wanted to redeem a bride for his son Jesus? Was this rescue of the, of the bride of Christ accomplished the same way of all these other acts? 
that we have seen? Was the entire plan of redemption for sinners just spoken into existence? Because the Bible seems to say that all of God's acts of power in creation and performing miracles on the earth were done by God speaking forth. But when it came to executing his judgment and wrath against sins committed against himself, God did not just speak pardon because God simply could not just forgive us. He could not say in the face of our sin, let there be peace and harmony between God and man. He could never say that. To make 200 trillion billion stars, he just spoke it into existence. But to forgive us, he could not just say, you are forgiven. (coughs) The reason for this is that to accomplish God's justice and establish his righteousness forever, sin must be punished without any favoritism and punished completely, completely. Every sin must be punished. Therefore, blood must be shed. That's what it tells us in the scriptures. Death is required. And not only death, but all of God's wrath executed and demonstrated against sin. Salvation could never be achieved just by speaking and unsupported forgiveness as there is no basis for it. No speech could meet these dual requirements of achieving justice for God's honor or also meeting his demand that men become righteous. God is just and he always does what is right. But he had promised, he had made this promise a blessing and a lineage to Adam and to Abraham and to Moses and to David. So here we have this problem, the biggest problem in the world. God's character and reputation is at risk. He's made this promise to sinners that they would be forgiven and receive his life. But he couldn't just speak it into being. His honor was at stake. His word was at stake. His holiness must remain in all of its glory. For those promises to be kept, somehow man must be punished, yet attain a perfect righteousness. God made a way. What was impossible for men, God made a way. God had created us in his image and had chosen to love us, his creation. He loved us so much that to absorb the full force of his wrath against our sin, he sent his son to be born to a poor virgin in the village of Bethlehem. And he sent legions of angels to announce his birth. Jesus entered this physical world that he had made as a servant. He hid his glory and he came to seek and save a bride. Think about this. The eternal word, see, before God just spoke these things into being, and now that word 
became flesh, grew as a man, was tested under the law, but lived a perfect life. He always loved God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he always loved others as he loved himself. He would need to get hungry. He would need to be tired. He would need to be rejected and slandered and and accused and beaten and spit upon and crucified and forsaken and cursed by God and buried. The salvation that he purchased for us and gave us by his grace was not just spoken into existence. You see, you follow me. He couldn't just say, Bill, you're forgiven. Because there's no, there was no basis for it. There had to be a, a foundation and a basis for it. <clears throat> and it was real life. It had to take real life. The, the spoken word had to become flesh and become real in this physical world in which we live. And had to be lived out in real blood and real sweat and real tears and real suffering. So I marvel at what God has done in providing salvation for me in Jesus Christ. When I consider what it took for Jesus to save me compared to everything else that God just created by speaking into existence. I want you you see the, 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 the separation here. Everything you see and hear and the miracles just spoken. Boom. There they are. But to obtain salvation for us, God had to become human flesh. Under the law. Fulfill every aspect of it. Always love God with all of his heart, his mind, his soul, and his strength. He always loved his neighbor as himself. And I'm amazed. But this word is never far away from us because God God spoke to and inspired his prophets to write the scriptures for us. And just as God's spoken word had the power to make and sustain the world and the earth and the heavens at the time of creation, his power and life is still expressed in his word today. When you face trials or hardships, remember God's promises and his actions to rescue you. No other religious prophet has ever done this. No other religion promises what God has promised. No other religious leader has done what Jesus has done for his people. So if you would, open up your Bible and turn to Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2. And and I'll say that, um, you know, Preston had us in Hebrews a couple of weeks ago. And then Camille was encouraging us to press on in prayer. And Tim was encouraging us to press on that God's making all things new. And then Randy called us to a spiritual maturity, continue to grow. And I'm, I'm thinking, okay, so what's the, what's the basis for all of these things that we've been talking about recently? And where does it all begin? Where does it begin? Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. And the... Um, is going to answer your phone. Um, the, the, the heading for this particular passage is called Warning Against Neglecting Salvation. And just, just to kick this off, I'm just thinking this, these people that have been rescued from their attics or from their homes with floodwaters, they are going to be thankful. They are going to 
their hearts can be filled with thanksgiving for this one who came to rescue them. They're going to be thankful. And it's going to change the way they live and they act towards that person. Right? I think there's a truth there that we need to look at here this morning. Hebrews 2, 1. Therefore, we must pay what? much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Let's just stop there. Hebrews teaches us that we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, that is, what we have heard from Jesus, the gospel, lest we drift away from it. If you're not paying closer attention to the gospel than to some other way, you're drifting away from the gospel. When it says closer, it's comparing the gospel to the message declared by angels, that is, the Mosaic law. Jewish teaching at the time said that the law given at Sinai was mediated through angels to Moses. And failure to keep that law brought about punishment. But because Jesus, the Son of God, is the one who announced the gospel, we are to pay closer attention to it. Hebrews made clear that Jesus is the one through whom God speaks in these last days, and that he was superior to Moses, superior to the angels, and to all the others. And this makes it imperative that we pay closer attention to what Jesus says. I mean, the angels mediated this covenant of law at Mount Sinai. But Jesus mediates a new covenant with us. And we must pay closer attention to what Jesus says. Because he's greater than the angels. And his message is greater than that of the angels. If obedience to the lesser law from lesser angels brought forth punishment, how much more severe punishment will come if we neglect the greater message not given through angels, but given through God himself. That's the, that's the proposition that's being said here in Hebrews 2. If lesser angels who give a lesser law and you disobey that, bring about the punishment, what's going to happen when you get a greater message from a greater being, God himself, and disobey that? Let's pay close attention to this. This greater message brings about greater responsibility to hear and to obey. Verse 3 then assures us that this gospel message from Jesus was attested to. It was confirmed by his apostles, the eyewitnesses of all Jesus said and did. The final inclusion point of this warning against neglecting the gospel was that God himself had validated it through all the affirming signs and wonders worked by these men, which is all the things I mentioned at the very beginning. God gave these miracles to validate that these people were speaking for him. So these are strong warnings against neglecting the gospel. The warnings of drifting away are given to encourage us to pursue our faith. These warnings show the dangers of unbelief and the lack of perseverance. 
Why, why is this? Why, why is there it dangerous to neglect your salvation? What's it really at risk? It's because this salvation is great. Have you considered the greatness of your salvation in Christ? I've checked ten different Bible translations for this word great. It's great on all of them. This is the word. When, when they describe salvation, it's always described as great. It's never described as mediocre or halfway or what? It, it, it's always great. The salvation is always great. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. And Camille, I was thinking about the, these shelters. Mm-hmm. We can about community. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, I have this terrible fear that many people remain outside the Christian church because so many of us give the impression that we, what we have is something very small, very narrow, very cramped and confined. We have not given them the impression that they are missing the most glorious thing in the entire universe. It goes on. Do you habitually think of your own salvation as the greatest and the most wonderful thing that has ever happened to you? I'll ask a yet more serious question. Do you give your neighbors the impression that you have found the most magnificent thing in the world? Is that the impression you give about your salvation? Would you be willing to sell all you have to buy that field with the pearl of great price in it? You can begin to see how this would prompt a, a, a more energized prayer life. How this would prompt all things becoming new. How this would prompt us on our walk towards maturity. Our salvation is no small thing. It is what angels, in which angels long to look, 1 Peter 1.12 says. Angels can't believe what they see. The prince of heaven became a baby. And they're looking, what is going on? He, look how much he loves them. Look at how much he gave for them. He didn't just speak this. He is there in the flesh, suffering and enduring for us. Do you rejoice in God's salvation? Do those around you know how much you treasure this wonderful salvation? Do the people around you know how much you treasure it? Let me urge you to preach the glorious truth of your salvation daily, both to yourself because we need to remember it and not neglect it. And to others, so they might know. If you do, you will keep the transforming flame of the grace of God at work within you. It's difficult to quantify all the reasons that our salvation is great. But I want to, list you, I want to give you ten this morning. I want to give you ten reasons that your salvation is great. Because I want you to be thinking about this. Because a rescue story is the greatest story you could ever tell. And we've all, who believe in Christ, have been rescued. First reason it's a great story is because of who obtained it for us. I mean, if, if you're rescued from your attic by some guy down the street in a boat, that's one thing. But if you're rescued by the governor of the state, that's another thing. 
Or suppose you're rescued by Michael Jordan. He comes and rescues you. Or some other famous person. Bill Gates comes and rescues you. Whoa. Yeah. You know. We're rescued by the King of Kings. By the Lord of Lords. The one who is better than all the angels. Better than Adam. Better than Abraham. Better than Moses. Better than Aaron. Better than David. Better than Elijah. It was completely the love, the suffering, and the obedience of Jesus Christ that saved us. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 tells us, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the first reason it's great is because of who, who obtained it for us. And the second one follows immediately. Our salvation is great is because we don't deserve it. We couldn't earn it. We couldn't pay for it. For us, it's completely and entirely free. It's free. Second Timothy 1.9 tells us, He who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. This rescue started before the ages began. So it wasn't a happenstance, spurious, I mean, spontaneous sort of rescue. It, this rescue had been planned before time began. Wow. God had given this a lot of thought and contemplation. There's no way we could have earned it or planned for it. The third reason it's a great salvation is what it saves us from. It saves us from the power and the curse and the stain of sin. We are no longer slaves of sin, no longer stained by its guilt, no longer enslaved to fear. We're not trapped by the shame of the past. We are purified from sin and gained freedom from fear of death. This is pretty significant, what we are saved from. It's not just rising water, temporary, physical. It's eternal. We are saved eternally. Romans 8, 2, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We've been set free. So, accompanying that one is the fourth reason, and that is the forgiveness it gains for us. You know, when you have a fight with your wife, and you've alienated yourself from her, what you really want is to restore the relationship. But until there's forgiveness, there's no way for that relationship to be restored. So you, forgiveness is the key to restored relationship. And our relationship with God had been broken. And he had to come to a place where he could forgive us. He chose to forgive us in Christ because of what Christ has done for us. So the fourth reason this is great salvation is because it, it, it gains for us God's forgiveness. We are forgiven in Christ. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And what, he said, what that meaning is that there's no trespass against God that's not covered by the riches of the grace of Jesus Christ. Nothing. There's nothing outside that the grace of God is not covered. And then Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, 
But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. The forgiveness it gains for us is great. The fifth reason we can never lose it or misplace it or have it taken from us or stolen from us. We will never lose this salvation. This rescue, once implemented, is complete and eternal. I give them eternal life, says in John 10, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. It's not an incomplete self-rescue. The sixth reason our salvation is great is because it establishes a new purpose and meaning on our lives on earth as we come to know God, the glorious God, the source of all truth, the source of all delight, the source of all pleasure, and then we gain the privilege of drawing near to God to offer worship to Him. You know, suddenly the rescued have this new meaning added to their life. They've been rescued by God and they are forgiven forgiven by Him. And and now they can take pleasure and delight in worshiping Him and drawing close to Him and Him drawing close to them. Philippians 3.8, Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now, it, it's, it's difficult merely to think about people in a shelter thinking this way. They've lost, if, they, if they truly have lost everything. But somehow in that shelter, they gain Christ. Would would that be a trade worth making? Would that be a trade worth making? And that's what Paul's saying. He says, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. I think that's a sanitized word I've heard. <laughs> In order that I might gain Christ. This salvation that you have is worth everything. It's worth everything. The sixth, seventh reason, the salvation is the way that we will grow up into Him who is the head, into Christ. Our prayer lives become to take on the character and the interests of Jesus Christ. We put away old things, Tim, and all things become new. We press on to maturity because salvation is the starting point for our walk with God. To see and to know and experience and enjoy the glory of Jesus Christ is the ultimate expression of life. I don't know how we could exist and not be talking about this. It is the ultimate way to live. Ephesians 4 13 through 16. We heard it last Sunday. We're going to hear it again. Until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge about the Son of God to mature manhood, 
to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The salvation has knit you in to the body of Christ. Which is a wonderful thing. A great thing. God has not left us alone. He's knit us together with other people. People who want to fellowship together, who want to worship God together, who want to pray for one another, who want to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. This is how we demonstrate that we belong to Christ. The eighth reason is the glorious future it obtains for us. Not only in this world, but in the world to come. We've been temporarily rescued in this world. But there is a permanent rescue that's coming. And we we know that there's a permanent rescue that's coming because we've seen that God's been faithful in the temporary rescue. And he's promised that there'll be an eternal rescue. And we're waiting for that to happen. And this future that we, he's promised us is that we would know God fully, face to face. And we would dwell in his presence. So let me tell you, this salvation that God offers cannot be improved in any way. There's nothing that you could think of that would make it better than what he's already given us. For we are complete in Christ. We are written into the will that says we inherit the world to come. This is ours. This is the salvation that we have. This is the rescue that God has for us. Colossians 2, 9 and 10. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. And 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You might think of other things that make the salvation great. I've only got two more. The ninth one. This promise of salvation, this offer of salvation, is extended to the entire planet. To every person made in his image, this offer is given to each one of them. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10.13 The promise is given to all who believe. And then the tenth one. The salvation assures us and, and get this, if you've not thought much about God, think about the creator of everything you've seen. The one who, <coughs> who speaks and life comes forth. 
and that you could know him. But think about this. Salvation assures us that God knows us. He takes notice of us and that he loves us. God notices you. Like there's an anthill in the back of Carla's yard. Have you taken notice of those ants? No. Didn't know there was an anthill. Mm. You know, I, I think about cities that I've never heard of. You know, there's probably a thousand cities in China. that I've, Maybe a million cities in China. I've never even heard of them. The city, much less any person in the city. But God notices everyone. God knows every single one. Every single city and every single person in every city. In Honduras and in Peru and everywhere, in France and everywhere else. I mean, he, he knows them all. He takes notice of them all. He knows them. J.I. J. Packer writes in Knowing God, What matters supremely, therefore, is not, in the last analysis, the fact that I know God, but the larger fact that he knows me. My name is graven on the palms of his hands. I'm never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. There is no moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted from me. And no moment, therefore, when his care for me falters or his attention is gone. Is there any greater love story than this? 1 Corinthians 8.3 says, But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. And Galatians 4.9 says, But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? What I'm saying is this, as you live and work to enjoy this life, don't neglect great God's great salvation or the truth of being loved by Him. Don't neglect the sacrifice of Christ's life on the cross. Don't neglect the gift of Christ's righteousness imputed to you by faith. Don't neglect the removal of God's wrath and the granting of His blessing. Don't neglect His forgiveness, His acceptance, His protection, His strength, and His guidance. Don't neglect the Holy Spirit dwelling in you to bring you into fellowship and friendship with Jesus. Don't neglect enjoying the radiance of the glory of God. Don't neglect your free access to His throne of grace. Don't neglect the inexhaustible treasure of His promises made to you. Salvation is a great gift, so do not forget about it. To not pursue it, or to ignore it, or to be apathetic towards it, or to refuse to rejoice in it would be utterly foolishness, even evil. So build your life. I will build my life on a sure foundation. So build your life on God's salvation. Don't be pushed by the world into fleeting suicidal pressures of sin. We go back to Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says this, Perhaps an atomic bomb will destroy this world. But that does not trouble the Christian. His treasure is not in this world. His treasure is not his bank account or his profession. He lives for another world. He sets his heart upon the world to come, the glory of God, experienced face to face. That is what is offered by this great salvation. We are being prepared. We are being prepared. We are being prepared for a glory that is indescribable. 
when Jesus wipes away every tear and he comforts every loss and every sorrow. That's what we are being prepared for. So a couple of verses. Psalm 51, 12. Maybe we make this a prayer. So Jason, if you would, you have one more song. Um, think about it. Does your salvation bring you great joy every day? Does your salvation bring you joy each and every day? When you face struggles or persecution or sickness... Have you neglected the joy of your salvation? Psalm 51.12 says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And Psalm 20 verse 5 says, May we shout for joy over your salvation in the name of our God. Set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Lord, I pray that you would convince us of this such such a great salvation. And Lord, that we would not neglect it. But Lord, that we would preach this salvation to ourselves. And all of the blessings and all the provisions of it. Lord, it is completely by your grace, freely given and freely received, Lord, by the by the act of faith. Lord, now I pray that you would build our faith to comprehend and to enjoy and to know this love of God. And Lord, we do pray for those impacted by this storm. Lord, we pray that would be revival break out in these shelters. Lord, we pray that people would, would look around and say, you know, there must be something more than this. There must be something more than fighting storms and battles and floods all my life. Lord, tell me the reason that I exist. Lord, show me who you are and who I am in you. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we give you thanks for this great salvation. In Jesus' name.